Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. Today is Earth Day, a time to ring the bell, yet again, about the environmental crisis we're currently living through. And it's bad out here, you know? It's a big, big problem that isn't just going to be solved by using a paper straw to drink your iced coffee, right? But in a bit, we'll get a little bit of inspiration from the writer David Wallace Wells, who wrote the book The Uninhabitable Earth. Now, I know that title doesn't necessarily scream hopefulness, but trust me, he does offer a way of thinking of this problem that offers some sense of agency. First, though, back in 2019, the writer Harriet A. Washington wrote this book called A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism and Its Assault on the American Mind. And in it, she makes this unique argument. It's pretty clear that environmental crises will hurt people of color more. But what exactly do we think of when we think of crises? Sure, there are hurricanes and storms and floods and such, but she told NPR Sarah McCammon about the slow, quiet, and long-term damage environmental issues can have on brain development. Polluted water in Flint, Michigan, Puerto Rico's slow recovery from Hurricane Maria. These are just a couple of examples of the ways that mostly poor people of color often suffer disproportionate harm from environmental crises. But how does the environment shape intelligence and IQ? A new book by Harriet Washington looks at this issue. It's called A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism and Its Assault on the American Mind. In it, Washington argues that IQ, while a flawed metric, is a useful tool to gauge cognitive damage brought on by environmental hazards. When we sat down with her, she said the negative effects of environmental racism can be seen in a town she writes about called Anniston, Alabama. They had been the victims of several industries and the U.S. government that had various types of noxious chemicals that were used in industry. And when the industry polluted the area, they did not inform the people. You know, that their water, for example, was rife with PCPs. And so um, people were poisoned steadily over the course of decades without knowing why. Children were dying of diseases that we tend to ascribe to adults. You know, heart disease, kidney disease, a lot of cancers, etc. And finally, when it was found that these people were dying from diseases that were caused by chemical companies, uh, some of the chemical companies basically pulled out of the area. There were several lawsuits, but Johnny Cochran's lawsuit did indeed get a huge settlement for them and established a health center so they could finally have these um, ailments addressed. But the money did not last very long. The health center had to close just a few years ago. And now these people um, have spent their lives there. They're living basically in a poisoned environment. I thought of it as a science fiction environment. You know, people are growing their plants that used to be in their gardens in big plastic drums because the soil is poisoned. So it's a very, very post-apocalyptic landscape. And these people who are almost completely black people, don't now have very little recourse. And it's something that's happening all across our country. And you document multiple communities that have been touched by environmental racism. And in in each case, or in, in many cases, it's a different pollutant in different communities, but the, the effects are similar. Why is, why are people of color, this is, a, this is a simple question, but I want to ask it, why are people of color disproportionately affected by this? For the same reasons as disproportionately affected by many things. It's um, various racist policies that have um, persisted for decades, and in some cases centuries, um, have herded them into areas where they are exposed to toxins. Um, 
Segregation is a factor in many urban areas. In Baltimore, black people live in certain parts of the city because they can't go elsewhere. When lead was found to be devastatingly harmful, and it was harmful to everybody, white and black people, when that was found to be the case, whites were able to go to the suburbs to housing that had not never been exposed to lead and live away from the hazards. But black people were not allowed to move into suburbs. They weren't allowed to move into white communities at all. They were trapped in these areas where the, they tended not to have ownership of their homes because of redlining and other racially, racial policies. So they did not have the, the force that a homeowner might have in terms of forcing some kind of government action. So a lot of racial policies conspire to create communities that are relatively powerless and uh, have been concentrated in areas that are harmful. So you went into your research, of course, knowing that there were some disparities, and and I I gather wanting to unpack them a bit more. But what was the most surprising thing you discovered in doing this work? I was deeply, I was most impressed by the fact that one argument that industry and the chemists and scientists that it employs to defend itself, one of their arguments is that very often we're talking about very small exposures, for example, they'll point out that you're so worried about this exposure to PCBs here, but we're talking about one drop in 118 bathtubs full. Clearly, that's not a problem. Sometimes it is a problem. You know, scientists um, have sometimes made assumptions about thresholds when thresholds don't exist, or assuming that there has to be a certain level of exposure to create harm. Overestimating <laughs> the amount of exposure exactly. that could be harmful. Yes, Um so um, the thing is that for fetuses and very young children, one drop in 118 bathtubs full can indeed be harmful. They have this exquisite vulnerability caused by the fact that their brains are still forming and there are developmental um, windows. For example, axons migrate on a certain day. A certain brain structure is formed on a certain day or a certain week. If they're exposed to a tiny, tiny bit of chemical any other day, it might have no effect at all. But if they're exposed on the date when that particular structure is being built, it can be a devastatingly harmful effect. So that surprised me how commonly it is that very low doses can be extremely harmful to developing fetus. I knew it happened. I didn't know it happened so often. But you say there is a glimmer of hope in that if we do collectively work together, some of these problems can be fixed. What are some of the most important changes you would like to see in terms of public policy? We have to stop the rollback of EPA policies. Under the Obama administration and earlier administrations, we were starting to make real progress. When the current administration took office, there were only four chloroalkali plants left. The others had been closed. These uh, spew a great deal of mercury into the atmosphere. They were slated to close, but... The EPA under Trump decided not to close these plants. A few days ago, the EPA under Trump decided to stop surprise inspections, which is going to, of course, diminish their effectiveness. So we're rolling back the progress that we had made. Then we have to reevaluate the way we test chemicals. In the European Union, you have to test a chemical that's going to be used in or near humans for its effect on human health before you can market it. In this country, we market the chemicals and only begin testing after complaints that people have been harmed. And one of the things corporations tend to say is that it's so expensive to do these tests 
There are things more important than money. Right now, 23 million IQ points are lost every year in children from exposure to lead. And how do you put a price on that? That's Harriet Washington, author of the new book, A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism and Its Assault on the American Mind. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's easy to sort of throw your hands up and say, there's nothing I can do about climate change, right? David Wallace-Wells understands this. And in this interview with NPR's Rachel Martin from 2019 about his book, The Uninhabitable Earth, he goes through the worst-case scenario of climate change and all the gradient situations leading up to it. And in a counterintuitive way, makes a strong argument as to why you shouldn't throw your hands up and how every inch or every point zero 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 one degree of global warming matters. Author David Wallace-Wells opens his new book, The Uninhabitable Earth, outlining three misunderstandings about climate change. First, it's speed. More than half of all of the fossil fuel emissions that we've ever put into the atmosphere have come in the last 25 years, which means that we've now done more damage to the climate than in all of the millennia before, in all of the centuries before. Then it's scope. We were sort of taught the problem was really about sea level and coastlines. We're starting to see that climate change is really an all-enveloping threat, which promises to transform, probably deform, Every life lived on the planet in some way. And finally, its severity. It was basically considered irresponsible to consider scenarios north of about two degrees of warming. It was called the threshold of catastrophe, and nobody really wanted to think about it. It turns out that two degrees looks basically like our floor for warming rather than our ceiling. And so we really need to start thinking about what the impacts will be at two and a half, three, and even four degrees of warming. I asked him to explain what that kind of warming would look like. The absolute worst case scenario is that the planet becomes uninhabitable. I think that that is vanishingly unlikely on any timescale that it makes sense for us to think about. But the crazy thing is I don't think you need to look at worst case scenarios. Right. So end of the century, the UN says we're going to be at about 4.3 degrees of warming if we don't change course. 4.3 degrees of warming would mean $600 trillion in um, damages from climate impacts. $600 trillion is double all the wealth that exists in the world today. Our agriculture would probably be about half as bountiful. So the same plot of land would be producing about half as much yield in a world that we would have at least 50% more people to feed. We would have places in the world that could be dealing with six climate natural disasters simultaneously. And as soon as 2050, it's likely that many of the biggest cities in the Middle East and India will be unlivably hot in the summer. So it will be a lethal risk to set foot outside in the summer in places like Calcutta and Delhi. And UN estimates for the number of climate refugees that could be produced just by 2050 on the conservative end of their estimates, we're dealing with 100 million climate refugees by 2050. So there's a lot in there. Let's try to unpack some of what you just laid out, in, in particular, 100 million migrants as a result of climate change. How, how do you deal with that? Because that is in part where we have seen anti-immigrant populist movements explode across Europe in the United States when climate is driving so many people to look for sanctuary in other resource-rich countries, uh, the natural tendency is to say, yeah, maybe we need to figure out ways to keep them out or to at least save our own. Yeah, I mean, if you had to imagine a threat large enough to really call into being a true network of global cooperation, 
Um, climate change would be it. It's all encompassing. It challenges the lives of everybody everywhere on the planet. And yet it's really reaching a crisis point as we're all retreating from our international agreements and commitments. How do these climate impacts transform the relationship between nations and the responsibilities that we feel towards one another? One quite alarming possibility is the one that we're seeing today, which is that nations recoil. Another possibility is that we will be kind of called into a kind of brotherhood, sisterhood. We realize that we're all dealing with this threat together. We all bear some responsibility for it, and we should do everything we can collectively to deal with it. But I don't think that's, you know, I don't think it's a safe bet that we'll end up in that happy place. You have laid out what do you you describe as really apocalyptic consequences. How do you deal with the human tendency to curl up in a ball and walk away from the problem? Regular people, when they hear this, they will think, how can I possibly make a difference in this? I am not a politician. I'm not a lawmaker. I'm not a scientist. And it is depressing to live in this headspace. Yeah. Um, No, it's it's bleak. Um, But I have to say that optimism is really always a matter of perspective. I think many of us have been taught to think about the range of possible outcomes um, for climate change as between where we are now or even zero degrees of warming and two degrees of warming. And I know that the range of possible outcomes this century is between two degrees and four degrees of warming. So how optimistic I am is based as much around four degrees of warming as it is around two. Now, two degrees is hellish enough. I think it's about our best case scenario, and it is truly alarming. Um, If we get to two degrees, one really remarkable paper demonstrated last year, the air pollution effects alone would kill an additional 150 million people beyond what the air pollution at 1.5 degrees would, would cost. That is our best case scenario. So when I talk about being optimistic, I'm talking about a range that starts at a death toll of 150 million people and extends to a world four degrees warmer where we would have eventually hundreds of feet of sea level rise, horrible impacts on agriculture and public health beyond our comprehension. Now, a lot of people would want to just sort of recoil from even that best case scenario. And I think that is a human impulse. But my own instinct is to say every inch of warming makes a difference. Every inch of warming means averting some suffering or causing more suffering. And that at no point should we give up because while on the one hand, it's already too late to avert anything south of two degrees of warming, it's also never too late to change the course of our warming and make lives more prosperous and healthier and safer and more abundant and happier going forward. And so we should never, ever stop caring, never give up because it is always possible to make a difference. And I think that we will. I do not think that we'll end up at four degrees. I think it's likely we end up at about two and a half or three degrees by the end of the century. That, again, will be to any perspective that we know today, hellish. But if you know what's possible at four degrees or north of four degrees, it counts as an optimistic outcome. And that's where I am. The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming, written by David Wallace-Wells. Thanks so much for talking with us. Great to be here. Thank you. 
That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Kelly Wessinger and Megan Lim and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by David West, Rena Advani, Jivika Verma, Danny Hensel, Samantha Balaban, and Ed McNulty. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.